The following is produced by Artisan Church. Welcome to the Artisan Church Podcast, a weekly broadcast of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. To learn more about Artisan Church or to support the ministry, visit www.artisanchurch.com. As I mentioned, we are finishing up the, uh, the final series of this, uh, this look at the life of David and how he rose to be king of Israel, and not merely as just a biographical exercise, though it's a fascinating life and story, but also for what lessons and implications even more so than applications, maybe, how we're implicated in that story of David. So uh, a couple weeks ago, or three Sundays back, uh, Pastor Scott kicked it off looking at the fact that David was chosen, and not because of any merit of, her, of his own or something special about him, but just by God's grace. In some ways, he was an unlikely candidate. Uh, in some ways, he had some great qualities, too. But the idea that God chooses, often with categories very different than how the rest of us choose what's important and who's important and those things. And then last week, Tyler, who's uh, one of the original members of this relatively young church here, uh, seminary graduate, uh, you know, big brain kind of guy, he uh, really gave this challenging take on one of the aspects of David's life with the encounter with Abigail and looked at how reckless David was and, and how there's some qualities in David that are not to be emulated by us, <laughs> but to be learned from. And so finally, we're at one of the high points truly high points where David seems to get it right eventually. Uh, He will get it very wrong, and we'll see that in the sequel to this series that comes in a couple weeks called David, the Fall of a Man. Uh, But right now, what we're going to look at today is in 2 Samuel chapter 6, and there's all these different characters, these people in there that give different takes on how one might respond to God, how one might relate to God. And what I want to do is, is just move through the passage first with a little bit of commentary to give context and help us be oriented. But then afterwards, we'll go back and look at, it, at uh, three people in particular. So as we're going through the scripture, it's 2 Samuel chapter 6. And if you're using the Red Bibles, that's on page 244. Uh, I want you to pay attention to the different people involved. Uh, you might notice in particular Uzzah, of course David, and then Mikhail at the end. So let's jump into God's word here and see in particular different ways of relating to God and how that may challenge us and rework our thinking. Second Samuel chapter six says, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. David and all the people with him set out and went from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. What he's talking about there is the Ark of the Covenant, that special sort of container, had the uh, cherubim with the wings on top of it. It was with Moses and, and God's people through the wilderness, and then when Joshua came in the promised land. And it was a place where God would manifest his presence in a just amazingly powerful way. It was kept in the Holy of Holies, that innermost part of the, uh, of the tabernacle. And it hasn't been where it belongs. Now David's going to get this, this representation of the very presence and power of God. So that's what they're talking about there. It says, verse 3, they carried the ark of God on a new cart. You know, only the best, nothing used for God. On a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, 
which was on the hill, Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went in front of the ark. So apparently Uzzah is bringing up the rear. And then it says in verse 5 that David and all the house of Israel were dancing before the Lord with all their might. With songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And so the picture is of this amazing celebratory parade. And it's not entirely clear whether these folks are worshiping God or it's just a great reason for celebration. Whether this is directed towards God or in some ways is directed towards David. It's, it's just, it's ambiguous which way it's going. But nonetheless, they're having a pretty good time. Things are going well. And then we get to verse 6 and 7. And it says, When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. It's just being helpful, right? No big deal. Verse 7, The anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him there. Because he reached out his hand to the ark, and Uzzah died there beside the ark of God. That will stop a parade, right? Someone's bringing up, they're coming up behind one of the floats, gets a little wiggly there, and reaches out, grabs it, drops dead. You know, a whole bunch of batons are going to hit the floor all of a sudden, right? What is going on there? What is it about how Uzzah was relating to God? And responding to God, that was brought about this rather, I don't know, that seems extreme, doesn't it? So keep that in your mind just a little bit. And maybe think of times when you've observed things that are somehow associated with God or the people of God or, or God's activity and action. And you've seen something happen, not necessarily to yourself, but something damaging or unsettling. Uh, Good things happening to bad people. Bad things happening to good people. And and none of it making sense. And it gave you some pause. Think about that. Because for David, it gives him pause. Whether he was worshiping or partying, it was a parade or a procession towards God. David has a strong reaction. It says in verse 8 and 9 that David was angry. Have you ever been angry when you've thought you've understood what God was doing and did not look right. David was angry because the Lord had burst forth with an outburst upon Uzzah. So that place is called Perez Uzzah, which in Hebrew means bursting out against Uzzah. Very creative name. It's called that to this day, or at least when this was uh, captioned and recorded. And then it says in verse 9, notice what's happened to David. He's angry, and now it says he was afraid. Not the, not the good kind of fear. He was afraid of the Lord that day. He said, how can the ark of the Lord come into my care? And maybe it was a good kind in that he needed to be a little more mindful about who this God is at work in his life. But David rethinks his relationship. Having observed what happened to Uzzah, which even a simple reading seems a bit extreme, There were some taboos against touching holy objects and and maybe you aren't supposed to just grab the Ark of the Covenant, but but just to drop dead from a helpful gesture. And David, 
having observed that, uh, has second thoughts about how close he wants to be to God and how close he wants God's activity to be to his life. And so uh, he makes some changes. Again, maybe you can think of some times or right now in your life that you're rethinking that relationship because of just unsettling stuff or things that don't make sense. And so we found out, particularly last week, when Tyler was teaching and preaching, that David, not the greatest guy. And so once he finds out this thing, you know, kills you if you touch it wrong, here's what he does. Verses 10 and 11. So David was unwilling. He's angry, afraid, and unwilling. Unwilling to take the ark of the Lord into his care in the city of David. Instead, David took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Because Gittites will take anything, right? So they find the nearest Gittite who's got room in his garage, and the ark goes in there. This is not David doing him a favor. Remember, this is a parade float that when it goes sideways and you touch it, you die. And this poor Gittite, you know has it on his property. And he's telling the kids not to go by it. He keeps finding dead birds next to it that landed on it. And he's like, but ironically, here's what happens. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. I just like saying that. Uh, come on, you little Gittite. The Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. So we're not going to look at Obed a whole lot. So let me do a little side note here. It's fascinating that through no merit of, of Obed, in fact, it's almost, it's truly by accident that he ends up with this thing. He's blessed by God. And I only mention that because when the stuff, the Uzzah type stuff happens, it's, we're real quick to look at the negative and say, how could God be either holy or loving or all-powerful or it doesn't make sense. That wasn't deserved. But we aren't always as quick to look at the undeserved grace. And here's this Gittite honestly, a Gittite, he doesn't have much going for I don't know what Gittites are. Um, we didn't cover that in seminary. That's how unimportant they are. I, if anyone here is a Gittite, I am so sorry. You are, you're welcome at Artisan. Just please sit in the back. Have you ever observed that, though? Something undeserved... That's grace-filled. Have you ever received that? Probably should pay attention to those moments, too. That, but that happens as well. And so, Obed's being just blessed. You know, the crops are growing taller. The sheep, the goats, the cows are giving birth to two, three, four at a time. And they're all living. The kids are healthy. And just everything's going great. And remember, David is a very manipulative, horrible person most days. And he finds out. What's going on? It says in verse 12, It was told to King David, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and took it back. David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Everyone's happy. Except the Gittites, probably. But The parade is back on. But I think there's been a shift. I think David has worked through some things. And maybe not with the best of motives of getting this back, but he's a little chastened about how loose he's been with his relationship with God, is my take on it. Because here's what it says. 
with much rejoicing. Verse 13. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. And they just kept doing it. Every six paces, it seems. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. David was girded with nothing but a linen ephod. So he's practically in his boxers. And it says that David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of trumpets. And so it seems like if it was just a parade before, it's more worshipful now, David's response and reaction to God. Right? Because now he's at least taken six steps, head count, Everyone's still here? Quick, you know, let's do a sacrifice, you know. All right, six more steps, you know, roll call, you know, count off. One, two, four. Oh, you know, we missed one again. And he just, he's taking this a little more seriously, more seriously than I am apparently. Uh, and those are acts of worship, those sacrifices that he's making. And there's much celebration. But you can't have a good celebration without someone criticizing it. The neighbor that calls in instead of just coming to the party. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 16, we have Debbie Downer you know, looking down upon the parade here. And it says, As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, the original king, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. Nice. Another reaction. You have Uzzah. Have a little side note about Obed. Have David, and there'll be more about David here. And then we have Mikhail's reaction in response to God and what God's doing. Oh, sure, directed towards David, but I think it encompasses all of what's happening. And what might be going on there? Because it's a way to respond to God, right? Maybe it's a way that you're familiar with. But here's Mikhail, and understandably so. Her dad used to be king. He's gone and dead. She had to, wanted to, is married to David. And for whatever reason, she is distant and aloof, literally, and hypercritical. Have you ever had that experience of looking upon something that is somehow connected to God or God's people and just having... A distasteful reaction that, that's not right. Either because you thought they were doing something generally wrong, but doing it in God's name, or it just was goofy. You know, they have you clap once and then twice in a row and come back around and do it again. You're like, I don't think so. That's just stupid. I'd rather go to the bar with the Giddites and be here, you know. But if you have you can maybe sympathize a little bit with Mikhail. And so we'll come back and look at those folks, but it continues on because no one knows Mikhail's reaction. They're just partying, going great. And so not knowing that she's up there fuming and, you know, and just hating what's going on, it continues in verse 17. And it says, They brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered more burnt offerings and offerings of well-being before the Lord. So more acts of worship. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the offerings of well-being, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed food among the people. 
all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, into each a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins. So, appetizer, main course, dessert for everybody. And he blesses them. And it says, and then all the people went back to their homes. And so it's at this point that if it was ambiguous before, it's becoming clearer, to me at least, that David is genuinely worshiping God. Why do I think that? His response and the overflow and what he does after the worship, to me, indicates worship was really happening. Remember Jesus? You guys remember Jesus, right? Uh, But uh, particularly something he said, uh, where he sums up all of Scripture in two sentences, the great commandment. And the first part is, you are to love the Lord your God with all. All your heart, body, mind, soul, wherever that is, you know, strength. And then he says, and, and then we see that. What's David been doing? Dancing before the Lord with all his might. He's giving it everything. But then what does Jesus say? He says, ah, because they asked for just one command, if you recall. He said, well, there's kind of two. And they're very closely connected. He says, the second is like the first is to love your neighbor as yourself. And so a measure of worship, if you're truly loving God with everything, might be how do you treat other people? And who knows what the cause and effect is on which makes the other stronger? But in David's case, it wasn't just a parade or even a religious spectacle. It then resulted in him being a blessing to others. In very tangible ways. Not well-wishing and I'll pray for you and, uh, you know, we're thinking of you. You know, those are nice sentiments. Apparently, I'm not a very sentimental guy because I think those are almost useless. Not praying for people. That is very powerful. But just the, the throwaway gestures of, yeah, I'm thinking about you. Well, could you put some gas in my tank? Or, you know, could you watch my kids when I have a doctor's appointment? That would actually, could you not pray and just help me? That would be useful. Because if we were to love our neighbors as ourselves, as we'd want to be loved, we would want it to be useful and tangible. And David does that. Some hors d'oeuvres, good piece of meat, and a nice dessert. Everybody. And so for artisan as well, that would be a measure, right? Like, how do we know? In fact, we're, we try to be careful with our, with our language around here. Well, <laughs> that's not true at all. We're, very, we're relatively loose with our language. We try to be careful with our terminology, though. I make no promises about language. Terminology, though, we do try to be careful with. And it would, it's rare that you would ever hear one of the pastoral staff or the leadership team call what this is, what we're doing here, church. Or call this thing that we're in church. This is a building, and hopefully this is worship. And often at the end of the service, whether it's me or someone else, we'll say something to the effect of, and now we're going to leave this place of worship to go and be the church. And so if we leave this place of worship and nothing's different for the next six days, no one's life is better. That literally our next door neighbor would be better off if we didn't live there. That the community we're, we're in, the neighborhood, our coworkers, our schoolmates, our family, if they're not tangibly better off 
because we are involved in their lives, then you got to ask the question, did worship actually happen? Because it may have just been a parade. It may have just been a party. And we love those. And I think party and worship should be very hard to tell apart at first. And that it really should take about six days before you're sure. A little bit of recovery time and then, you know, know what's going on. So David's response, relationship, reactions to God has matured and changed, I think. And then this clinches the deal for me because he doesn't just finish with doing the, the visible stuff. You know, the things that could be. We could ask the question, is this just bread and circuses? Is this just kind of the opiate for the masses? You know, some religious spectacle, a few treats, and then they'll, they'll be good till you know, the next season. He does some private things as well. In fact, it says in verse 20 that David returned to bless his household. And Scripture's real clear about that, that if we don't take care of our relatives, particularly our immediate family, I think it's 2 Timothy 5.8 or 1 Timothy 5.8. It's one of the Timothys, 5.8, something like that. It says um, if we don't do those things, we don't provide for our family, we're worse than unbelievers. And so if David doesn't also care for his family, if he in fact lets ministry and doing his job get in the way of blessing his family, that's not worship either. And so it's good to have this affirmed. It says, David returned to bless his household, but he's interrupted. It says, but Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David. She was not going to let him get past her because she had a few things to say. And she said, how the king of Israel honored himself today. You can hear that tone of voice. Guys do it too, so it's not a, it's not a wife thing. Uh, in fact, guys can be a lot whinier at times. But Oh, how the king of Israel honored himself today. Just the sarcasm. Uncovered himself today before the eyes, and get what she's concerned with, before the eyes of his servants' maids. Probably Giddites, right? As any, I like the translation here, as any vulgar fellow, as any, because she's, you know, she's a princess, as any vulgar fellow might shamelessly uncover himself. And David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me in place of your father and all his household to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, that I have danced before the Lord. And I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in my own eyes. But by the maids of whom you have spoken, by them I should be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. And so Michal has her own reaction. That as the, as the narrator, the person putting together these elements, makes a point of saying how she was without child for the rest of her life, never had kids, which in that culture was significant. It was often considered a curse from God. And so Uzzah drops dead, Michal fruitless and barren in her life and her relationship with God. And so let's look at that. What might those folks say to us about where we're at? And do we see bits of ourselves or all of ourselves in any of these reactions, in any of these responses 
to how God might work in our lives. Let's start with poor Uzzah. Because that was just, that's just weird, right? This guy drops dead. What poor Uzzah ever do? You know, he's building a car with his brother. It's all nice, shiny, new. Puts, puts God on the car or the ark. Uzzah's just being helpful, right? He's just a helpful guy. He's just God's little helper. He just thinks God needs his help. He just thinks without him, God is helpless. And so he's probably bringing up the rear to keep an eye on all those yahoos that are going to screw this thing up. I built this cart, and uh, he's going to put this thing in a ditch. And God, you got to keep an eye on him too, because who knows where he's going to end up. And he treats God like he's some kindly old gentleman who's maybe not as sharp as he used to be. And you need to watch out because you don't want God sort of tripping and falling and breaking a hip because that would just embarrass the whole nation. And so it looks like God's slipping and Uzzah very helpfully steps in. Bam! Then there's there's the bounce. And he's dead. What's going on there? Well, I think fundamentally Uzzah's issue was one of distrust. Which may seem odd because he seems like a very faithful guy, right? He's right in the middle. So this isn't the kind of faithfulness that, that looks bad, you know, where we're, we have nothing to do with anything religious. We don't believe in God. No, this is the worst kind of faithfulness. This is a faithfulness that thinks we replace God. This is a kind that, that I struggle with on my worst days. And Uzzah actually thinks God needs his help. Not that God wants him involved or part of what he's doing, but that without him, God's going to slip up, not do what's right, mix and oozes there to help. And, and so thanks be to God that when I'm in that mode, it's a different dispensation or something because I have yet to drop dead, you know, thankfully. But if you see yourself in Uzzah, And I think it's more likely that in this crew, a church crowd, most of us, this is the one we're more likely to fall into. That when you do for God what God can do for himself, and when you put yourself on the cross, you don't save anyone, especially yourself. And you may not die like that, but every time you do it, Every time I do it, you die a little bit because it's not how we're designed. And so that's one way to relate to God, to feel like you've got to do things because he can't. Or if you don't do it, it won't get done. That's one way. Skip to what seems like the other end of the spectrum, and that's Mikhail. But it may just be the flip side of the same coin because she is literally distant, aloof, hypercritical. And her fundamental issue, I think, is one of disdain. That she has reached a point where she just disdains. She has an allergic reaction to the things of God or the people pretending that they're doing God's stuff or whatever it is. She just has disdain. And I was thinking, you know, it would be less likely one would think that that would be a major issue with most folks here. Because you're somewhat self-selected, right? That if you disdain 
God's activities and God's people and those things, you tend not to show up to put yourself through this right here. But as I was thinking about that, I thought, yeah, but artisans, we're weird. And so it seems like by God's grace and his incredible sense of humor, which is one of his attributes that he shows most often here at Artisan, uh, that he has allowed us to create a space where those who have struggled with disdain towards God or towards God's people or towards God's work find us a safe place to work that out. And the staff has literally had dozens of people tell us that if it wasn't for what God is doing through you folks at Artisan, if it wasn't for what's going on here at Artisan, I would have nothing to do with God. And so apparently, it's okay to show up here with some disdain still on you. You're welcome here. But what's, I think, more likely is some of us here have loved ones, good friends, that that's their struggle and we don't know what to do about it. You know, kind of, it's sad as a pastor to have to kind of work with someone who the boyfriend or girlfriend, they disdain God and you're not on the same page. It's even harder when it's a spouse. And so how do we, how do we work that out for those who disdain this stuff? Well, I think eventually we'll come around to an answer, and it's partially following David's example. But let's, let's again be honest. On his watch, dead guy, wife despises him, okay? So we want to sort of pull out the parts of what he does that are the best. Um, but I think some of David's clues might show us how to not only get over the distrust and disdain in our own life, but also to help others who are struggling with both those things. And so David's example, though, is one of devotion. And it's not just kind of afterthought, lighthearted. It's full-on devotion. And because of that, he has to have a few things straightened out early on, but when he comes back three months later, it seems like he finally gets both the celebration and the profound awe that he should hold God in. That God is to be worshipped and celebrated, and there's the kind of fear that makes you unwilling to be close to him, and then there's the good kind of fear that makes you want to be even closer. Because you'd rather be on the right side of that than the wrong side. And so, if these other two are so negative... And if David's best example here of of celebration and worship and being a blessing to others seems like the best choice, why don't we choose that? Why do we often go to the other extremes? Why do we find ourselves distrustful, disdaining, and not devoted? I think this is the reason. Take a look at this. We don't want to look like that guy. Because that right there is one of the best pictures of this passage I have ever seen. We don't want to be fully devoted because we'll look goofy like some idiot dancing on a hill. But hey, you do it long enough and another guy will join you. Is that good? Is that bad? Don't know. But it's fully devoted. And I love that these guys don't care. 
But here's the guy I love the most, and he's the third guy. Because when he comes in, it changes things. But right, we'd rather be disdainful as some of the folks sitting around are, or distrustful, those who are going to go home wishing they'd gotten up and joined these two guys. But here's my favorite guy coming up. There we go. And this guy right here, he breaks the log jam. He's the one we need more of in the church. Because after this guy, yeah, after this guy, check it out. I just noticed this, kind of, I confirmed this this morning. Then the two cool guys show up, and now everyone knows it's okay to come. So <laughs> what you have here is a beautiful parable of what the church should be. It should look like an idiot on a hill dancing to music no one's listening to until others start joining. And so there you have Artisan Church being launched four years ago. One service going great. You know what, though? One service can't hold it. We better have a morning service, too. And then, though, then that group of fools shows up. Um, you know, there's a Giddites there, I'm sure. And when you're foolish, for God's sake, it's strangely attractive. And then at some point you decide, one location's not enough. You have to launch Artisan downtown. Because look at him keep coming. And honest to God, this image chokes me up. Go ahead and turn it up a little bit if anyone's up there for this last bit of the, uh, the music that's actually there. It's okay if you can't, but... It's okay. It's, it'd be on the board. To me, this is a picture of Christ's church. And it's a great example of, of David dancing before the Lord. And it's a really good picture early on of why we're so scared and unwilling to be fully devoted. And it's a great reminder towards the end of maybe why we should. And so who are you in this story? I'm not interested in application. I'm interested in implication. How are you implicated in the scriptures we read, in the image we just saw? Where's your struggle? Let's pray. God, we thank you that you give us through your word, through scripture, real stories about real people. Not without all the messy details taken out and smoothed over and just made nice so it all fits in a nice little package. But you give us folks like David, who is a mixed bag to say the least. Uh, But you choose him even though he's reckless. And you show and empower him in ways that he can just be fully devoted. Thank you that you give us strong warnings. Sobering warnings through the lives of folks like Uzzah and Mikhail, and how it's so easy to to just park in those places. And so my prayer is, as a pastor who loves and serves these folks at Artisan, is that each person here would choose the path of foolishness, at least in the world's eyes. And even if they have to be the one person by themselves for a while, they would be willing to do it. 
So be at work in the hearts here so that this will have been worship this time today and it will be lived out in the foolish things they do that make this world such a better place and that they would do it in the power and name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. And so how else do you respond to that? And it strikes me that there could be folks here that a lot of this is very new or you're returning to it having been away for quite a while. And I imagine, um, I, I kind of make stuff up about what Jesus might have thought. Uh, not the important things, but it's just the way I do things. Uh, but I can imagine, at least, when Jesus was describing, you know, he did the parables and he, and he talked about folks being thrown into outer darkness where they'd be weeping and gnashing of teeth, that in his omniscience, uh, he knew that someday there would be a thing, 2,000 years later, called a junior high dance. And that in the gym, there would be the dance floor. And then in the outer darkness, on the chairs around the edge, there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the big take-home of this is, you can't dance until you get out of the chair. You don't want to be like some of the folks who drove home from that festival saying, ah, I should have danced. God is gracious, and he no doubt will give you more days. But why wait for him? And so, with eyes wide open, and not to embarrass anyone, but if ever there's a place where you will be affirmed and encouraged and welcomed, even if you look a little bit foolish, this is the place. And so I'll ask the same question I asked this morning. If you're looking, particularly for the first time, to be fully devoted to Jesus, I'm not going to ask you to dance, but it'd be great if you stood up as just a physical act of prayer to just remind yourself that you can't dance if you don't get out of the chair. And so if anyone wants to do that, you feel free. Yeah, that part I didn't mention. Those are the folks who stood up this morning too. Wonderful. And so I'm sure there are many stories here all along the spectrum of first-time decisions, of major recommitments, and maybe some slight course corrections. It's all good. Whether you're the first guy, the second idiot, because that's how this church started, or the third guy who finally comes along, and then the crowd starts coming. It's all good. But this is a start. This is a start. How about the rest of you? Would you like to dance also? If so, stand and join these guys, and I'll pray. And so those who want to that stood up first, please feel free. In fact, please come speak to me afterwards, whether it's immediately while we're doing communion or at the end of the service, uh, so we can connect and have some conversations. Uh, This is not meant to go alone.
Because one person dancing by themselves, it does look stupid, let's be honest. We're to do this together. So talk to me. Let's pray. So God, thank you that your Holy Spirit is as real and alive today as when they got glimpses of it in, in David's day. And then when Jesus gave it fully to his church to do its work, to apply the truths of your scripture and to apply, most importantly, the work of Jesus who did the most foolish of things and died the most ugly of deaths, the death of the worst kind of criminal because he took on himself the worst kinds of people. And we thank you that through his death and his resurrection, we're able to get up and dance and be part of your work in this world and to have an eternity with you and each other to worship and praise and keep learning and growing whatever that looks like. And so I pray for those who stood that this would be a wonderful start to a new season of life. And if it's just six steps, take a break and worship real hard and then take six more steps, so be it. But get them going. And for the rest of us, let us be an encouragement to them and let us draw encouragement ourselves. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. So for those who stood first, you're the reason we do this. And I would encourage you guys that stood first to approach this communion table, perhaps in a way you never have before, recognizing it is the body and blood of Christ in those sacraments that made possible your relationship with him. And for the rest of us who struggle between disdain and distrust, it's the same table that brings us back to where we need to be. And so this table will be open for the remainder of worship. Go ahead and grab a seat and just approach the table as you feel led. Uh, No need to line up, and then worship and music will keep happening. So the table is open. I'll be hanging out in that back corner if anyone wants to uh, catch me right now. This has been the Artisan Church Podcast. To receive future podcasts, go to www.artisanchurch.com slash podcast or subscribe on iTunes. Thank you for listening.